0: I love the American theater so much that I, I actually reserve the right to critique it.
1: Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season three, we are focusing on the intersection of arts and advocacy. So many off-Broadway artists give back to their communities. This season, we are giving them the opportunity to speak about how and why they chose the causes they devote themselves to, and how those causes help them make them the people and artists they are today. Hi, good evening, everyone. My name is Eric Ostro, one of the hosts of Live at the Lortel. I'd like to welcome everybody. Thank you for coming. I'd like to bring on our co-host, my dear friend, Joy Michelle. Joy.
2: Hello, Eric.
1: Hello, my darling. You look beautiful, as always.
2: Thank you. So do you.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It took a long time. Uh, Okay, so... I'm going to do a little intro. Our guest tonight I'm very excited to have because we don't have that many designers on. Clint Ramos is a designer, educator, advocate, and creative producer who has designed sets and or costumes for more than 200 theater, opera, and dance productions. He is the recipient of a Tony Award for Best Costume Design of a Play for Eclipsed, making him the first person of color to win that category. He has three other Tony nominations for costume design and one for scenic design. He is also the recipient of two Obie Awards, three Lucille Lortel Awards, a Drama Desk Award, an Outer Critics Circle Award, two American Theatre Wing Henry Hughes Awards, amongst many other honors. He is a Producing Creative Director for Encores at New York City Center and serves on the American Theatre Wing's Advisory Committee. Clint is a lifelong advocate for an equitable landscape in theater and film for black, indigenous, and people of color, and for the rights of immigrants. We'll talk with him today about design, action, and everything else. Please welcome someone I admire so much, Clint Ramos.
0: Hi, friends. Welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm good. It's finally spring in New York, you know. So it's been
1: great. It's it was actually quite warm today. So yeah, that's, that's nice to hear. <laughs> really nice to hear. It's time that we had some sort of change. How are you, folks?
2: I'm doing fantastic. I'm, I'm in doing Los very Angeles. Well, well so especially it's nice just today,
1: <laughs> we have you. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. I'm a big fan. I want to start with, you know, unfortunately, Into the Woods just closed. That was your last show that you just closed and finished. Fantastic production. Yes. You know, it was a little bittersweet because we just lost Sondheim. Yes. And I know Sondheim, you know, is involved in pretty much, if it's in New York, he's he's yes. there and involved. What yes. was it like working on a show where he wasn't a part of it? He, he wasn't around at least you know, for the past few months?
0: Um, It was profound. I think we we all... I don't think there was a moment where we actually were not sort of carrying his spirit. You know, James Lapine came to first rehearsal and was very present throughout the rehearsal process. And, you know, I think it was good that we, you know, because we had been planning the season for two years now, uh, since Leo and I uh, started our um, leadership Mm -hmm. tenure at at City Center. So Steve was pretty much, you know, very involved in the planning process. And so we... uh, you know, we hope we did him proud, but we also, we celebrated the body of work that he gave to us in a way by this production. You know, the last, the last show that I worked on with Steve that was through Encore's, was Sunday in the Park with George. And he was very involved, you know. He, like, I remember him asking me questions about the costumes because I was the designer for that. But um, I didn't necessarily feel sorrowful. It felt very, you know, it felt very solemn. It felt very sort of spiritual in a way, you know, and
1: celebratory, like we celebrated his life. When you did work with him and he would ask you questions about costumes or or whatever, what was Steve like to work? uh, Steve, like he's my good friend. What was Mr. Sondheim like when he would approach you and ask you questions and have conversations about costumes and sets, etc.?
0: I mean, he was pretty direct and and not, you know, I I don't mean that in a sort of negative way. He was very Mm -hmm. succinct. You know, he asked questions about, you know, I had sort of taken a pretty much an abstract departure for the clothes for Sunday in the Park. And, um, you know, he had questions about the sources of that, you know, and then, you know, it was... extremely extremely smart and you know he he understood what the references were you know and so it was a it was a it was a great conversation you know it was a it, it never felt like he was giving me any sort of notes or anything it was it came from a place of curiosity
1: you know and there was never a uh, no that, that that's not going to work no ne- never <laughs> i never, just i never just... i never experienced that at least oh you know? thank yeah. god at least yeah. you didn't right
2: That's wonderful, that's wonderful. So in your experience of working and being almost always the only when it's time to accept awards and get the accolades, what has that been like for you to step into a space where you don't see very many other people that look like you or you're the first? What is that feeling like and what is your hope for the future do you see yourself getting more firsts or do you see yourself wanting to see the end of the firsts because there's so many other people of color that are stepping and being into the space and being appreciated as well
0: yeah i think that's a uh... <laughs> That's a hard question. I, you know, being the first carries so many things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I think on one hand, I'm very proud that we've sort of broken that, that film, right? Like that, that sort of barrier. Uh, on the other yeah. hand, you kind of realize how long it took uh, for me, I have hope that we, as an industry, can keep on moving forward. I think our commitment to this is a daily practice. The way I, I look at it, you know, we it ought to be a daily practice, right? And and to answer your first question, what is it like to walk into spaces? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a combination of things. It feels there's so much work that one does even before the work happens, right? Because I think one of the things that I keep on saying is there's such a profound amount of effort to position yourself to negotiate your presence your the presence of your body in a space where you're the only one right or you're one of a few that's a lot of labor right and that happens even way before the real work happens you know so in a way it is exhausting right but i do i do hold hope you know i think i hold hope because because i believe that we are here to tell stories and that has that was our primary commitment and i think t- to that end we're telling you know we're moving towards telling everybody stories you know it's both profoundly sad and also hopeful in a way you know
2: mm. you're in such a phenomenal position where you are production designer you're costume designer for all the people who are listening and particularly the young students that are listening, because we have a lot of students that listen in as well. Can you kind of give us a a roadmap of how you got there? Because, you know, this is not like overnight (laughs) success, right? (laughs) So how did your start happen and any words of advice for people who are looking to walking your your footsteps.
0: Yeah, I'm going to give you the cliff notes of my journey. You know, I grew up, I was born and raised in the Philippines, and um, my first exposure to theater was through political street theater. I grew up under the Marcos regime, which is a very oppressive regime, and... um, and sadly, the Philippines is going back to, to that family. You know, so I, I learned about theater being, uh, I was a, I was 11 when I first encountered it. A drama teacher said, would you like to come to one of these, you know, performances? And I didn't know that that was actually a protest, right? Like, and so, but I, I fell in love with the power of the theater. We performed these short allegorical pieces and they were short because we were afraid and most of the time it could go too long, the riot police would come and disperse you with water cannons, right? And so I saw firsthand the power of how performance and theater could actually move, move people in a way that shifts their perspective in life, right, and shifts their their philosophies. And later on, I saw how that contributed to the revolution. So I come from a place where I actually believe in the theater as a catalyst for change, right. And so,
1: and when I moved to America, wait, so, I want to ask one one yeah. quick question. Yeah, I want to jump back. So you had a teacher that asked you to be a part of the little theater that put on, yeah. And where was that? Obviously, you, you yeah. guys were protesting, in... Yeah. In Manila. In, in squares in Manila. Okay. Yeah, in
0: town squares, business districts. My job would be to hold this pa- bamboo pole, right, with the red mm-hmm. flag. And that sort of would signal folks, you know, people to gather around because there would be a pop-up performance there, you know. And there were allegorical pieces, like thinly veiled, like little fables, you know. Would, there was one piece that was about a, a vampire sucking people's blood and, you know, but but that was, <laughs> you know what I mean? That was like,
2: <laughs> you know. Uh,
0: and, so, and so, yeah. You know that was it happened in in those spaces where we would do it in lunch hours or after work where people were going home. You know, so just to remind them, it was another way of it was counter propaganda in a way. You know,
1: and they would come after you with these enormous water cannons, cannons, yeah. and disperse you. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah, and that's if you went too long or if it yeah, was, if you too it long because it, out of if you stepped too far. Was that it? Well, we were already stepping too far,
0: right? Like any sort of form of protest or anything like that, you know, or any sort of like public assembly. Remember, this is, you know, like a very sort of oppressive regime. You're just counting on the amount of time somebody tipped them you know tip the cops uh, or the, the the riot police you know and the and the time uh, it would take for them to come and disperse us you know so that would be around 10 to 12 minutes like if you go 12 minutes you're in tr- like you you would mm-hmm. you know you would you would start feeling really you know panicky mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and so, so then you move to the story, states I'm sorry mm-hmm. as i moved to the states you know and then i I, w- I encountered a very sort of different kind of theatrical system you know but also like i i, came, I, I moved to the states and all of a sudden i was brown Right. I like I I came from a homogenous country. And so at least racially. Right. And so, you know, there were a lot of things that I, I had to negotiate. So, you know, and then the biggest thing that I could say is that I found a mentor. People of color opened doors for me. What I feel like I'm doing now is literally what has been done to me. And I do it, you know, not because of any altruistic thing, but it's, it was because it was done to me, plain and simple. George Wolf came and saw my work and said, come to the public theater and do work here. And the very early, you know, years of my career, I didn't really get the people who would hire me were people of color, you know, and particularly Black folk. I'm going to put a really fine point on that because, you know, I think a lot of that is because in terms of the work of color there black folk were ahead but also i felt like they had offered a home to me right like they were like hey, okay you can practice your art here and and so that was that was basically how i i just basically went where the love was i never dreamed of going to Broadway, I knew that my work was Broadway adjacent or, you know, it was off-Broadway or off-of-Broadway. Ellen Stewart was also a big sort of supporter. Like I would, you know, sometimes like when I would be in between apartments, like she would let me sleep at La Mama. So that's sort of like where my career path went. And then slowly, I think people noticed my work off-Broadway, you know, uh, Janine Tesori created Off-Center and and said, hey, I I loved what you did on Good Person of Center. Chuan, would you come and be one of the principal designers for Encore Soft Center? And from there, Violet happened, and, and all of that happened. But I would say, because your original question was, "What would be the piece of advice I would give to younger folk?" Is particularly younger folk who who come from a sort of marginalized, underrepresented action. I would just say, go where the love is, and that yes. really that means. Seek out people who value the things that you value. Seek out people who you may have the same lived experience with. And seek out people who feel passionate about the things that you feel passionate about. And I, and I was very lucky because I, I didn't have a roadmap after grad school. I did not have a roadmap. When my classmates were being hired for this job and that job, I didn't know what to do. You know? And so I was very lucky that I had mentors who knew what I was going through. Sort of took me under their wing, and I think that's very important in terms of mentorship. You know, I think there are so many well-meaning folks who want to mentor, but I think there's a section of that particular young artist's life that is impervious to
1: some mentors. You know, and I think it's it's important to be porous to that. Mm. I agree. You know, as you talk about Broadway, I definitely want to talk about Slave Play, <laughs> and I can't talk about your Tony Namad set without talking about the mirror yeah yeah, in the play that you used and I happened to go see it I saw it twice but the first time I saw it you know I had no expectations I really didn't know what it was or what I was seeing and we were sitting in the front row Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) I mean front front row right Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. how did this mirror idea come to you Oh, it was sort of circuitous, you know. I got a
0: call from my long-term collaborator, actually a text, Robert O'Hara, and he said, you know, he said, "There's this kid. He's still at Yale, and he wants to, you know, he wants me to do this. Have, have a read." So I read it on the, on the train, and I said, I texted him immediately after I read it, and I said, "I don't know what I just read, but like I, 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 I feel all sorts of feelings about it." And so it came, the mirrors came really from meetings with Jeremy and Robert, you know. They had both different desires for what they wanted in the play, none of which were physically possible, right? Robert wanted to do it in the round, and I couldn't reposition the seats at New York Theater Workshop because we started New York Theater Workshop. And Jeremy wanted it to be sort of like fully immersed in a real plantation or as close as we could get. You know, he, he mentions the word very to. in in the script. None of those directives were possible. And so I had to sort of like go beyond the desire and see what was the spirit behind those desires, right? And, Mm. And for Robert, it was about intimacy. It was about being able to Look at these people and the actors. I mean, and and the performers, in a way where you where you understood their humanity, but also, moreover, it was about the performers and the actors being that close to the audience, so that they can actually also negotiate the terms of how they're performing it in front of them. That was important to Robert. It, in a way, it it was about keeping the actors safe, and for Jeremy, it was really this desire of like a historical contextualization of how to place bodies inside a plantation. I set all of those things aside and I kind of like did a a bunch of research and did a lot of research really. And that's sort of my favorite part is you kind of like get, you get caught up and you lose yourself. You get Mm. consumed by this rabbit hole of research. And I I saw um, this photograph of Michelle Obama at the Venice Biennale it seemed to me that she was looking at, that she was inside this mirror room, right? She was looking at this projection in a mirror. And I thought, and I, I put a bookmark on that in my mind. And simultaneously, I was also looking, because we know what, the, what slave plays, I was also looking at how one would perform intimacy. So I was looking at a lot of like bedrooms, like intimate bedrooms. And a lot of these bedrooms had mirrors up up above the bed. And so it clicked. I think to me, it, it just made, it was very quick. It like, I said, oh gosh, I can do this. I can create this theater in the round for Robert through mirrors, through reflection. And I actually could place these bodies inside a plantation. And I thought, you know, if there is one thing that would represent sort of a bastion of white culture, it would probably be the American theater, right? And so in a way, by locating, by reflecting the audience who most of the time were white, reflecting the sort of like the en masse, the people who actually consume plays and placing the play in that visually, like not even philosophically, but like really placing it in that, we may be able to replicate that feeling of displacement. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what this space is, you know? Like, why am I here, you know? But also, I also wanted, I think with plays like that, with any sort of like play, I suppose, you know, we always, as a designer, we have an opportunity to sort of calibrate how much we're indicting the audience. And I think that's important, like for me, I wanted each member of that audience to look at their reflection and see how they're complicit. Because each one of us, from black, white, or anything in between, are part of that system. To me, it's a chance to sort of look at yourself and examine your
1: position in that system. And that's exactly what happened. (laughs) To oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to see yourself. And I felt like we were, my friend that I was with, we were like, I was like, first of all, get your feet off the stage. And second of all, we were the other characters in this play, what was my feeling about it?
0: Yes, because for me, regardless of how you feel about the play, the play is polarizing in terms of like, you know, and I, can't, I won't even get to that because like that's, that's something that Jeremy and Robert can probably be more eloquent about. The question for me is, in seeing your reflection, one gets the opportunity to ask oneself, well, why am I here?
2: Why am I watching this? Mm-hmm. I'm so thrilled about having you here today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, The last scene in Slave Play. Yes. When she is clothed and he is not. Yes. Can you talk about how you all, you as the wardrobe, the the costume designer and also as, did you? I did do the costumes.
0: Didier Ete did the costumes. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So I'm curious to, to, to know what was the storytelling intention with the dynamic of... Him being naked, which is being naked, is the most vulnerable position yes. you can be yes. in, and her being clothed, however, being the the one who was is, violated. Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Can you I, talk about that storytelling? I'm sure
0: there's like a multiplicity of versions if you ask each person of the creative team in that, uh, you know. And for me, the way I looked at that was, well, yeah, it was about vulnerability, also, right? And it was about being completely devoid of any trappings as far as that particular character is concerned, right? And yet not being able to hide because of the the sort of like, you literally, because we've pivoted the mirrors now to create mm-hmm. this sort of colosseum, right? And he was, it was inescapable. And to me, then in that state, any sort of theater goer can make a judgment of whether or not can make a pure judgment right because in a way you you physically stripped him you physically stripped that character and how does he now place himself in the narrative and what is your point of view on that I think to me that was sort of the biggest point right while she being clothed still can step into the narrative and still have this Brechtian distancing from it right like in a way say hey this is the story, this is the play, this is the thing, right? So now, in these two sort of juxtapositions, place your judgment on it. And I don't think the play is trying to convince anybody, again... This is my own thing, I, I you know, I've, I'm sure Jeremy has a very sort of eloquent response to that. I don't think the play is, is asking for one sort of monolithic opinion, right? What I know what the play is asking for is the dialogue. And that dialogue can be as passionate as possible, or it can be sort of as philosophical as possible. And spark a conversation that I think, in a way, when we talk about race in America and you juxtapose that, it always becomes sort of this lofty thing. We have, I think for us, a tendency to separate ourselves and look at it clinically. Like we look at systems, we study the systems. And even sort of the most, I think, prolific liberal-minded people would look at race uh, through systems. But I think what the play gives us is an opportunity to actually look at it very much in a very unadulterated, intimate way, where id is the driving force of the conversation.
1: I have a a question, a design question about it. Rihanna, (laughs) you know, uh, with slave play, the mirrors became the thing people were talking about. But I want to hear about kind of the physicalization of the Rihanna lyrics. I mean, it fascinated me and and, couldn't, and I couldn't stop thinking about the lyrics were an actual physical part of the play. Yes, yes. I mean, how, how do you, I couldn't get that out of my mind. I mean, it literally became, it came to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how did you go about that? If you read the
0: play, right, um, he 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 writes out the lyrics, right. He writes out the lyrics, and I've always been fascinated, both by the dialect that was being used, but also he could have easily just said, "Rihanna's work is playing here," but he actually he you know, so to me, uh, it was very specific. It was very specific and it made me think about how through Kanisha's lens or through Kanisha's oral, you know, world, the music appears when she feels most oppressed, when she mm-hmm. feels most, that's sort of her neurotic tendencies to go to that song, right? And that, and that appears as a leitmotif. And then, and to me it was really sort of like this obvious thing, right? And it was the last element I added to the set because I looked at the set for many like iterations, and I'm like, there's something missing, you know, there's just something missing. And to me, I said, you know, well, why don't we? Well, let's try through a set model, through a little like maquette. Let's try just physicalizing the the lyric, right? And that particular lyric, nobody you're, you're righteous is the is the is the lyric, and. Um, and then it became clear to me that we can use it as a punctuation or an obvious representation of her uh, neurosis at the end of act two when she screams after the group therapy session when she screams because she's hearing the music we have the lyric going downstage and actually almost hitting them right like it's just like mm-hmm. kind of like it breaks the action but it also graphically it became like, almost like a palate cleanser like right. a, between the acts. And so, you know, I was excited about that. We sort of like, we tested it a couple of times and, you know, it was exciting. Although I still feel like we could have gone a little faster when it dropped, but, you know, Broadway wouldn't let us do
1: that. But it was innovative. It was something I hadn't ever seen on stage before. Oh, the the physicalization of those Rihanna lyrics that, you know, were coming at me. And inside of her. Yeah. Um, and that's how yeah. I felt very much connected to it. And I just want to give you your kudos to that. Oh, how, thank oh, thank you. Thank you. How you can take something like the lyrics of the show and, and the physicality of it was so incredible. It blew me away.
0: Yeah, oh, thanks. Sometimes design has to be obvious, you know? Yeah, uh, I guess uh, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, and at the same time, um, well, that year you were working on costumes for the Rose Tattoo. That's right, yeah. I mean, you had two shows. You were doing costumes for Rose Tattoo, and you were doing a set for the Slave Play. Yeah, you got a okay. nomination for both that year. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I did Grand Horizons, too, that year. Oh, and yeah. Grand Horizons, which yeah, I loved. With a oh, truck crashing into that living tru- room. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Jane
1: Alexander, period.
0: Uh, it, 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 end of story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> phenomenal show yeah yeah what what is your approach of I mean I know they were happening at different times but they were kind of happening at the same time yes they were what is your approach to working on costumes and then working on set do you have assistants around you are you you know yes. up at but uh, are you up twenty four seven? You know, sketching and then working over here. I mean, that's an incredible amount of work for one person to yes. be working on these three shows. <laughs> yes, to all. Okay. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> reply all. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, I am very fortunate that I have. You know, I'm, I'm supported very well by by my associates, by my assistants. But I think also that season, I couldn't have done it if we did. Both of those shows were essentially transfers, right? We had done, uh, we had done Rose Tattoo at Williamstown with Marissa, and then we had done uh, Slate Play at Theatre Workshop, so, or, yes, yeah, yeah, and so, um, in a way, I wouldn't have been able to do that if they were, like, original shows, you Mm -hmm. know, or, like, shows that would yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it requires a lot, it requires, you know, a lot of moving parts, you know, yeah.
2: So after doing this, how did you transition into Respect? Tell us how that happened.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Respect happened because Liesl Tommy, who's also a longtime collaborator, we were fellows at New York Theatre Workshop. They had a fellowship of color in the early aughts and, uh, and we were recipients of that. Tracy Scott Wilson was also one of the fellows there. And we had formed, and this is an example of go where the love is, right? Mm. We had formed really close friendships, you know, and sort of, they were my support system. We were each other's support system. I think a lot of times, and this is another piece of advice that I would give young folks, you know, is that you find your people, you know, because there will be times where you will be in spaces, that you may not have people with you. And there will be times that what you're feeling may be invalidated because, you know, or you may be doubting yourself. I'm like, am I right to feel this way? Am I right to feel this way? Or whatever happens there. But you have a group of people to call you know, just say, hey, I was feeling this way and this happened and this happened, you know what I mean? So uh, that's all I'm going to, you know, say about that. Just find your people. And they asked me to do it. They asked me to say, hey, would you do it? It's, you know, we're going to see it through a theatrical lens. And, you know, our friends, Audra McDonald, Heather Hadley, Saikon Sengblo, everybody, you know, the whole, like, it's going to be, is it Haley Kilgore, who I worked on was on this island with, Leroy McLean, are all going to be in it. And so I said, Yes, it was a it was a great opportunity. It was a great an amazing, amazing story by a by an American icon really. So I couldn't
1: say no to it. So that's how that happened. (laughs) In terms of all the characters in, in that movie. Do you take each character and break them down with their own? Like, do you meet with all the actors? Yes. First you do your own research. Then you yes. meet with all the actors to discuss their own point of view with, you know, Aretha, Dinah, yes. Ted White, James yes. Cleveland. I mean, all of those people. Every so single your, one. Mm-hmm, so you do your own research and then you meet with all of them and then get their point of view.
0: Yes, all that it. yes. It's just like what we do in the theater, right? But just like the scale is blown out, you know, because there were scenes that we were costing a thousand people, you know, there were church scenes and stadium scenes. But it goes through the same cycle. At least I, that's the way I did it, right? Like that's... I go through character research. I, I read as much as I could, you know, did all the photographic research, went to Detroit, went to Atlanta, went to, you know, there's a lot of like research that, a lot of photograph that's not online, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these black churches, actually, they have what they, they have photo albums, right? And that's, It hasn't been scanned or anything. So they have a repository of photographs from, I would say some of them from the 1920s, right? And they're there, like of socials, of church socials, of like, you know, every single thing. So you actually can see what folks were wearing, right? And so I was very lucky to have access to that on top of like all the fashion photographs, all of the whatever. And so, you know, I did all that research and then like had a meeting with each and every single actor before
1: we even went into fittings and. Before we even started building clothes. Oh, that's wow, fascinating. Amazing. I always wanted to kind of ask, uh, it's a kind of a silly question, but why, how come Aretha always had her handbag with her towards the end? Oh, that's
0: a very funny story. Of her life. It actually started in the 60s, uh-huh. it's about trust it's okay. about trust <laughs> we all know what her story is right and so yeah. it's it's really about it's about trust but i think the handbag in particular was about her insisting on being paid in cash there was a period of time where she insisted on being paid in cash because she didn't trust the promoters or the tr- she didn't trust checks you know that they were clear or anything like that, mm-hmm. right? And so the cash would be inside the bag, which she would take on stage with her. So she had her eye, you know,
1: she had her. So that's how that that so she happened. got paid even before she got on stage, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean I, yeah, I mean I, no, I'd probably do it for free, but I mean, in terms of you know, it's fascinating to me that you know, I remember the watching some of the last concerts that she did, you know, the week that she died, and seeing her, you know, bring her fur coat on yes. and carrying a big handbag with her, that did not look light. That thing looked heavy. Mm-hmm. So, I was always fascinated about what is the deal and she'd you know take the coat off sometimes and then put the handbag on the piano and yeah. she was not letting it out of her sight
0: no i mean i'm sure through the latter years you know she there were like managers and you know i think that there were for different financial arrangements but i think the habit just kind of
1: stuck you know let's talk about design action yes
2: i was about to go right there
1: okay. <laughs> Godjoy, joy ask the question
2: no 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 you just ask it that's perfect mm-hmm. Oh, design action. Yes, yes. design, yeah, design, design, design
1: action. action.
0: Sorry. So design action, yes. During the pandemic and during the sort of racial reckoning, we were not working, you know. And so a bunch of designers... And I, David Zinn, I'm gonna miss somebody. So I'm just gonna say David Zinn, Rachel Hauk, Jane Cox, Ricardo Hernandez, Danielle Worley. You know, a mixed uh, number of designers said, "Hey, what can we do to actually make a more equitable landscape for American theater design?" You know, there's a study that APAC does. You know, the Asian American Performers Association Alliance or Coalition does almost every year that's sponsored by the American Theatre Wing that actually does a study, a data study of off-Broadway and, um, and Broadway. It's o- almost like a, a tracking sort of diversity, right? Um, they've not done any for the designers until during the pandemic and Wilson Chin, the designer sort of spearheaded that project. And we saw that of all the shows in the last two years on Broadway, you know, before this year, Of all the 370 jobs, you know, uh, something like 97% went to white people, to white designers. And so we all just like looked at that and said, well, you know, how can we make that better? Both, how can we sort of start at the root of it, you know, which is sort of like the young folk, right? And also, how can we sort of affect change to make the embrace broader, right? Like, uh, you know, I think... One of the things that's always a misnomer, right, is that we want white folks to like not work anymore. We want to take their jobs, you know, and that's sort of like, it's really f- profound to me how this, this idea of the replacement theory is like, is a lot of the conversation that's happening right now because of the Buffalo shootings, right? But that is sort of like, to call that sort of like, oh, this is a new thing that, you know, but but that this is an ethos that sort of like, that undergirds emotions. But to us, we really look at it as like, when you make an equitable landscape, you're really just broadening that embrace. You're just letting more people in. And so we we formed the group and we invited both sort of established designers and young designers and designers who were in school and we started just talking. And that happened every Monday, almost every, almost every Monday for the last year of the, for that year in the pandemic. And we talked about how we could make it better. You know, we talked about actions that we could take. We talked about what, what is important to us. And mind you, this was this was a mixed room, right? We were both white and BIPOC designers. And, and what came out of that was sort of like this, these guiding principles that we kind of really believe in and that we, we ask theaters to abide with. And also sort of programs, you know, one of which is the Springboard to Design, which is co-underwritten by the American Theater Wing. And I'm going to put it in the chat, which is trying to get, high school students to actually perhaps think about a career in design when they go to college right is so it
2: a, is it a website if it is you can hopefully we can get it on the yeah i just put it in the it.
0: chat it's a it's in the american theater wing website it's a one week free it's a free intensive on design and you've got mm-hmm. broadway designers like you know i sort of ridiculous. There it is. We put Thank it up. Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and Thank it's, you, a, it's a it's one-week intensive for high school students, you know, open to, to underrepresented high school students who are like my path. My path was not straight to design. My path was like, oh, I might perform. I might like d- direct right. or whatever, right? But like I ended up in, in design and that's sort of a traditional, like that's kind of a common path, yeah. right? And we've started this as a one-week intensive Whether you have like this, all of these Broadway design kind of like, you know, giving workshops on what different areas and designs are. In that week, we do, uh, we, they get to see a, sh- a Broadway show every night, you know, and then we visit shops, we visit design studios. And then at the end of it, we actually have folks who teach at colleges, you know, to like talk to them about what, what ap- applying to sort of the design track of those colleges would be. So it's, and it's completely free. It happens uh, in July, and please apply. Like you have two more days to apply, so that's one of the the things that we're doing. So, really, that's what you know. That's what sort of design action is up to this moment.
1: That is very exciting, and yes. I hope people take a look and we'll put it up on the website
2: for those that are listening. It is AmericanTheaterWing.org org backslash program backslash spring board New York City backslash.
1: NYC, right. Yes, NYC. Before we let you go, I want to talk about a couple more things. I want to talk about the year you nominated for Once on This Island. Not so much the nomination, but your design for Once on This Island, which is one of my favorite shows in the whole world. You layered your costumes featuring dresses inspired by flowers and armors made out of soda cans and headpieces from wire and glass shards, (laughs) literally made, you know, for the gods. When they came to you and asked you to do this, is this something that you jumped at? I mean, did you know the show? Did you have any past experience with this show?
0: I didn't have any past experiences with the show. Okay. Michael Arden um, mm-hmm. asked if I would join the team. And of course, I was very, very excited. You know, it was through a longer sort of protracted process of collaborating with Michael and with Dane, our set designer, to sort of figure out a language, you know, of how um, how to tell this particular story. And we know that the folks who created the story were not necessarily, you know, they didn't necessarily look like or live the lives of the people of whom we're no. telling the story, right? Uh, but to me, that became sort of a guiding kind of challenge. is like how can we actually do the best that we can do? how can this literally seem like it's coming from the storytellers that this theatrical performance is coming from the storytellers and then we have to step back further and say well who are the storytellers and what is the french Antilles? like what what is where are we Mm -hmm. locating this and michael really felt like we have to be unblinking about it and this is where i like really have to give kudos to michael arden because michael arden was like no we gotta it's, it's haiti It is Haiti, and we have to present it, like, in the sort of most... Deferential, but yes, honest way of how to do that through research, you know, and visits to Haiti. Like you know, we accumulated a lot of things, you know, and a lot of it was because of natural disasters. Yeah, so we just was- we just kind of like layered all of that with the history of colonization in that country. You know how that country, you know, was like it, in a way is set up to you know there are failures that are set up you know for that country, and so I think a lot of that contributed to how. I thought if we start with an honest representation of like who the storytellers are they are hurricane ravaged haitians right and how out of this kind of like tragedy right or this sort of this disaster how can we tell the stories from the things that are actually littered around them, right? right. Number one, and why do they need to tell the story, right? And it, to me, was about survival. Like, I think that's how we, as human beings, you know, kind of survive. We tell stories, you know, mm-hmm. either we buoy ourselves with stories to tell ourselves or stories that we tell the community to sort of get us through the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, and that and that really was sort of the idea of the costumes and just sort of the nitty gritty of it. Like, you know, for instance, the way these storytellers transformed themselves into gods was about collecting stuff and, and putting it on right. them so that they could... They could tell the story from a god's point of view, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, it, it was very organic in a way and a lot of collaboration with the actors, you know, even the placement of Leia Salonga in that space was, was a That's conversation. Exactly I
1: was just going to ask about. Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead.
0: Yeah. 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 And so, you know, we knew that Leia was going to play, uh, Arzuli, the goddess of love. And Leia and I were both Filipinos, So I've had like conversations about her, about her character and where, you know, how to do that. And in that conceit, we really dug deep and she's like, how am I going to place my body in that predominantly black, you know, black company, you know? And we just like went through the research and research. And will, and then, you know, one day, like I saw this picture of a Filipina nurse doing work for Doctors Without Borders in mm-hmm. Haiti. And I said, "Leah, look at this photograph, you know? And that sort of like gave us the entree, you know, the entree into how we could place her body in that space, you know?
1: Wow. Yeah, there's, you know, that moment I, I hadn't noticed. I saw it a few times, obviously, but, you know, the stethoscopes that we see when we first meet the nurse, right? Yeah. And then it becomes the belt on the gown of Rosalie, yeah. right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, to me, you know, after a disaster, grabbing what you can to use to put on yourself or to make some beautiful something for yourself was an ingenious idea i loved catching that Mm, i don't know how many people were able to catch that but i loved i loved that i'm so glad you you caught that because it was so beautiful to see i was like oh there's that and uh, uh, here it is again oh i see
0: yeah 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 yeah, and we layered it you know we didn't like do one kapow right like we just like we raised right. how many like you know she was distributing mosquito nets right because of right. big product of like you know after a hurricane was malaria right and so this is what board doctors without borders does and that mosquito netting essentially became her gown you know mm-hmm. unbelievable
2: yeah. so what is next for you what do you have your sights set
1: on right now oh gosh it doesn't um, have to be but, a shadow, just... But yeah, anyway. no. Yeah. I think I, I'm
0: very serious about the new leadership position that uh, Lear de Bessonet and Jenny Gersten and I have took on a long course, you know. We love the American musical, and we are looking at how we can broaden that embrace, you know. It is such a, an institution that um, that is beloved, you know. And so we've just finished our first season. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm devoted to that, and I'm devoted to how we can sort of radiate that mission, right? And make it meaningful to the most amount of people, particularly New York City, because New York City Center was built for the people of New York City, it was the people's theater. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited to, you know, keep on doing my advocacy work, you know, because it's I was going to mention that, uh, you know, I'm going to put this on the chat too, you know, because it's AAPI Heritage Month that we started the Emergency Transportation Fund. And this is for particularly off-Broadway and off of broadway Asian American artists who feel unsafe going home at night. Please apply for this fund. It gives you grants. So you're able to take Ubers and Lyfts or, or whatever car service you want to take from to and from rehearsal so please but yeah i'm excited about that and i'm excited to just keep on doing the work and really hoping to all of us can make the american theater better
1: you know that is so important you know a fund like that to help people get to and from rehearsal and to the grocery store or whatever because of the the hate and the hating on asian people you know we got to fix that we need resources to and foundations like you've started to to help people get to where they need to go and feel safe.
0: Yeah, it's very important, particularly because culturally, Asians are not prone to saying something, you know. So, but within the community, we know that that uh, quite a number of people have already been either attacked or accosted on their way to. To work in the theaters. To whoever's listening out there, just like please, like apply. You know these are grants, and you can reapply if you run out of funds. You know, so uh, it's very important that we keep our API family safe. You know, the, the violence against Asian Americans have risen close to 400. You know, mm. during the, That's the pandemic, and it hasn't
1: waned, right? Um, so as conversations about diversity have been arising over the past, especially the past two to three years i wonder what your thoughts are about representation in the theater behind the scenes and i know we've been talking about it yeah we hear more about diversity with actors and playwrights but yeah rarely about designers i see the tonys and it's you know a couple of years ago was it was just white people nominated What, what was that like what's that like from your side is it turning It's hopeful. I would urge all of us to do is think
0: about how to make the process meaningful, right? So we just don't tick boxes, right? Like we just don't like, oh, you have to do your COVID test and now you have to do your EDI test and you have to do this and we have to nominate this amount of thing. Like, while yes, I, I think sort of equitable representation is certainly about numbers, right? But it also is an opportunity for us to actually understand why, why we're doing that. And I think why equity is different from from let's just say equality. Like equity is about getting everybody to be in the race at the same level, right? Mm-hmm. Not all of us are actually starting at that same level. And so to me, it's, it's an opportunity for us to make a meaning out of it. Like, and, and, and I think that's what's missing for me right now like it becomes automatic it becomes and i'm not listen if a team says oh gosh you know we we got to get more people of color in here i'm not mad about that what i'm gonna say is that that's such an opportunity to make it meaningful to ask why and why we are doing it and all of that like i think it becomes less of a I think I want it to become a cultural practice. And the other thing that I was going to say is that all of us, everybody, not just like people of color, all of us have, you know, we have to hold ourselves accountable. And that means that you actually ask questions. And that means you actually say something when you see something, you know, and that means that you actually question, you actually critique, right? You actually do that because... And the reason why I say this is because I think a lot of us are afraid. But for me, I love the American theater so much that I, you know, that I, I, I actually reserve the right to critique it. It reminds me of what Baldwin said, right, about oh. America, right? Like, I think for us to hold ourselves accountable every day to each other is actually a form of love. To me, accountability is love. And I think that's what I'm going to say about, you know, equity in, in the American theater.
1: I think that makes perfect sense. As we were saying, and, and you were saying you, you're hopeful, which is great. The great uh, Jocelyn Bio, who I love... I love Jonathan. Uh, I was just
0: with her on uh,
1: Sunday. Yeah. What a great playwright and actor and everything. And yeah. she I asked her that that same question, what what does it feel like now? Do you feel a turn of any kind? And she said she looks at it like this enormous enormous ship. The biggest ship you you'll ever be on in your life. And when you make a turn on that ship, you don't feel it. You don't feel it.
0: Yeah. She's 100% accurate. That is one of the most eloquent things I've ever heard. Yeah. You know, it's making a turn and you don't feel it. And uh, for me, I have no choice to but be hopeful. Mm. You know, I love the theater so much. My friends are from the theater. It has saved me, you know, so much. So from, from so many things. It has actually been like a lifeline for me. I have no choice but to be hopeful that it will be better. It's comprehensible for me to not love it, you know?
2: You know, I, you I, said go to where the love is. Yeah. And it is, I really believe that like attracts like. And I wouldn't necessarily say you had to go to where it was. I would say you attracted it. Yeah. You are just such yeah. a beautiful, beautiful spirit. that it is so evident that anybody would see your work and feel your presence and say, that's somebody I want to work with. So thank you so much for coming and spending time with
1: us. Yeah. Oh, it's that's been a, a pleasure. That's a light that, that I want a little bit of. <laughs>
0: that, <laughs> thank you for having for sure. me and for this, you know, for an opportunity thank to you, actually thank you for coming guns.
1: on, Clint, you are, we all look up to you and really admire your work. Through your art and through your advocacy, and this is exactly what we're looking for now in artists. So thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. That. Is our show? We are halfway through AAPI Heritage Month, but only have one more show left in our third season. Next Monday, May twenty third, join I O wrap up season three with a special two p.m. interview with Shannon I O. Shannon is just coming off her big Lucille Lortel Award win for Outstanding Lead Performer in a Play for the Chinese Lady. Incredible play. Ugh amazing and she's amazing i want to thank all of our listeners this season we hope you have enjoyed the conversations as much as we have to get updates please visit live at the and join our mailing lists and we hope you can join us next monday at two thank you for listening everybody thank you for coming thank you for being a part of season three and for being a part of change. Thank you, Clint, for your light and helping us get to that place. Stay safe, wear a mask still, I think, and go to the theater, ladies and gentlemen. The theater is open. That's right. Uh, You have to wear a mask. Patty LuPone will not yell at you. (laughs) Just get to the theater. Stay safe, stay healthy, and have a wonderful night. We'll see you next week. Good night. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, and associate producer Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, Gogo Public Relations, and special thanks to Nancy Hervitz, Alana Candy Samuel, Mara Levinas, Carla Liriano, and Ellen Chan. Live at the Lortel Sound Engineer and Mixer is Brian Falk at Abacus Entertainment. Thank you so much for listening.